Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Why do we sometimes not do the thing we know that works or works better? We've all probably had instances in our life where we knew there's a better way to achieve our goal or achieve success, but we don't do it. Why? Why is that? Well, that's one of the many questions my guest today has explored in his writing career. His name is Malcolm Gladwell. Many of you have probably read some of his books like Outliers or Tipping Point or David and Goliath. Uh, Malcolm's got a new podcast out called Revisionist History where he goes back in history to uncover overlooked or misinterpreted stories and pulls insights from them so we can apply them to our lives today or at least think about them. Uh, Today on the show, Malcolm and I discuss how Wilt Chamberlain found a better way to shoot free throws that increased his free throw percentage rate considerably, but he purposely purposely decided to stop doing it and what we can learn from him on avoiding that mistake. We also discuss the art of finding insightful stories in the mundane, asking good questions, and why you might want to decline that acceptance to a prestigious university. Lots of stuff to chew on in this podcast. After you're done, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be on it. Well, I've long been a fan of your work, and I'm enjoying your new podcast, Revisionist History, and uh, we'll talk about that today because you've got some um, great topics you're del- uh, delving into. But I'd like to get meta first because um, I've been curious about this. Um, you've made a career out of taking what seems on the surface very mundane or obscure stories. You've written about infomercials or ketchup, uh, but then you show how they can provide insights into complex problems that cut across domains. I'm I'm curious. What's your process of going about that? I mean, it seems like it requires a, like a lot of curiosity. So, how do you how did you develop that curiosity? Oh, I, you know, I never know how to answer that question. I um, I, you know, I'm a little bit of a magpie, so I collect ideas and quirky stories and things, and um, puzzle over them for a long time to figure out uh, how they could be useful. So, a lot of it is just I have a big I have a big random group of things that I'm always looking to find a home for. Um, but uh, also, I don't know. I just, I, I, I think I'm a, um, uh, because I'm not an expert in anything. I'm I move horizontally through ideas, not vertically. Um, so I never, you know, if you think about it, I've never written a book or even an article that was almost never. It was solely about one thing. I don't go deep. I go wide. Um, so I'm as I, I am as puzzled and 
um, by people who go deep. <laughs> people who go deep are puzzled by me who goes wide. You know, I don't, when I look at someone who writes an entire book about a single subject and goes into fascinating detail, I always wonder how on earth did they do that? You know, it's just right. not mine. Like about the toothpick yeah. or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> not my way of thinking about the world. And it, it seems like it requires asking good questions. Um, and one thing I remember in how uh, what the dog saw, you, you talked about there's certain people you want to ask questions, like the higher-ups. People at the top of the chain aren't usually the ones you want to ask questions. It's in the middle. Why are people who are in the middle or you know down on the – who are actually doing the work, the best people to ask questions? Yeah. Um, well, because they're – uh, they're seeing things from a different perspective and they are freed of certain kinds of constraints. So to give you an example, I got, there was a report that came out, um, from the Rand Corporation, uh, some months ago that was talking about how the staff at the SEC had increased dramatically in size over the last couple of years. And at the, Rand's having a conference, and I told them I would do a Q&A um, at the conference about this report, because I think it's really interesting. So what happens to decision-making when there's more people in the room? And the question came up, well, who should we do the Q&A with? Do we want to get, you know, someone way, way high at the NSC? Or do you want to get someone in the middle? And my sentence was, actually, you want the person in the middle, because they actually see the... We want to get into the nitty-gritty of what happens when you make crucial time-limited decisions with 50 people and before you used to do it with six, right? And I want to know what that feels like. I don't know, is that good? Is it bad? Is it, is it you know, I want really mundane things like, is it harder to schedule a meeting when you've got 50 in the room? Like, does that mean you can't have a meeting as quickly? Is it harder or less hard to reach consensus? Is it... You know, you don't want to, you're not actually interested, and probably they couldn't tell you what the subject of the meeting was, right? So, anyway, yeah, I don't really care about the subject. What I want to know is just what happens to people when they're in a different sort of context. And the person who can answer that question, I almost want to talk to, I almost want to go as low as I can. I, I, you know, I almost want the person sitting in the corner who didn't say anything at all and just was taking notes. Um, you know, someone's assistant. I don't know if we can get that low, but, but the person who led the meeting has a, just a completely different, you know, they're thinking about the politics of it, who they have to report to, the sensitivity, the material. They're, so they're almost, they're not who we want in this instance. Right. Now, maybe if I was, if I'm uh, if I'm a national security reporter for the New York Times, I do want that person because my goal is to find out what the, what came out of the meeting, what the decision was. But I'm not you know my perspective is different. I'm interested in it's not what has drawn me to this example. So it's just a kind of um, it just depends what questions you're asking. And because I'm very interested in process questions, it means I'm very often not interested in the in the person at the top. Gotcha. Um, anyway. um so another thing you're I think you're really good at is taking really complex ideas 
and simplifying them for just regular folks to understand. And I think that's actually a really important skill for people to develop because our society economy is becoming more and more complex. Um, so I'm curious, do you have a process that you go through to simplify complex ideas? No, but it was very much a part of uh, uh, my kind of upbringing. You know, my mother is someone who's a, one of the, one of the things, a writer, and writes in an incredibly clear and transparent way. And I remember as a child being very kind of um, taken by how clear her writing was. This is a model for me. And then my father a mathematician who's from talking to people in his field, I came to understand that he was someone who was um, whose kind of specialty was uh, he would take the 10-page proof and turn it into a two-page proof. Um, so I sort of feel it's in my blood somehow to want to um, uh, and he was also, a, he would teach me math as a child and would would take something I was hopelessly befuddled about and resolve it and explain it in an incredibly elegant, simple way. And so I think I just sort of came to think of that as um, the highest form of um, communication, you know, to, is to, and I remember even as a small boy, I was like, you know, like many boys, endlessly played board games and I, or card games, and I would always insist on being the one who explained the game to everyone else if they hadn't played it before, because I was always convinced I could explain it better than anybody else, and I could even explain it better than the instructions. I always found instructions lacking. <laughs> you know, and you know how you get a new board game when you're like eight years old and you read the instructions and then it makes no sense? Right. This would infuriate me. The way they were written would infuriate me. I would always have my own way of kind of explaining how they worked. Right. And then again, this is your focus on processes again that you, you have that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, like even the very simple thing, instructions on games, the first thing you should tell, you should say is what the point of the game is. Right? What is winning in this game? And they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't say the first line should be, you know, in Monopoly, the winner is the person who dot dot dot, and then explain the rules, right? Uh, but they would always somehow they would feel like the point of the game was supposed to kind of emerge from an understanding of the rules, which strikes me as crazy, completely backwards. But so that was a. I guess I've been doing this all my life. During your entire life. It's really interesting. Um, so let's talk about some of the, the things you've written about and what you're doing on your podcast now. Um, and as mm-hmm. I've read your work and I've, as I've been listening to your podcast, Revisionist History, it seems like a, a common idea that you explore is why people, you know, they'll know what they need to do, do that there's a better way to do something, but they don't do it. Um, and you explore this idea uh, that I thought was completely fascinating in your po- uh, podcast about uh, the granny shot in basketball. Yeah. Can you talk about like what we can learn about why humans sort of self-sabotage themselves from Wilt Chamberlain and the granny shot? Yeah, that was the, that's the first episode. Um, 
it's funny, you know, the, I, I didn't think that was one of the stronger episodes, and yet it seems to be the one that people, listeners, have gravitated to the most, which just shows you what a bad judge you are of, 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 your, of one's own work. But that, I was, I was reading, I can't remember why, I was really, um, uh, in, an interesting book on Will Chamberlain, and it just describes his greatest game, his 100-point game in 1962, I think. One still the greatest basketball game anyone's ever played. And he shot 28 to 32 from the line, and which is weird because he's a terrible, he was famously a terrible free throw shooter. So then you keep reading and you realize, oh, wait, that season was one of the only seasons in his career where he consistently shot underhand because uh, his team had brought in a famous, one of those kind of, one of the famous old school, um, actually a guy from the, what was it called? I think the Hebrew League, so the Jewish Basketball League of Philadelphia, uh, a guy named Cy Castleman, famous free throw shooter, who shot underhand. He was brought in to coach, teach Will Chamberlain this, this way of shooting, and all of a sudden Will Chamberlain becomes a fantastic free throw shooter. And then the first thing he does after becoming a fantastic free throw shooter is go, go back to shooting in the old way. So he could be a terrible one again. Um, which struck me as being so bizarre that I thought, and, but also not just, but not more than just bizarre, so typical of human beings that we don't, we don't always do the thing that's right or correct for us or best. We were very often quite happy to go back and do the thing that got us into trouble, right? I mean, there's a million examples. People who have a problem with alcohol relapse. You know, you know, or you know, we all have bad habits. We know they're bad and we persist in doing them. And so I thought it would be really interesting to kind of use the free throw story as a way of talking about that very human tendency uh, to behave stupidly even when we know better. So, you know, the, it, it's distinct from we do stupid things all the time just because we don't. We don't know better, but we also do stupid things when we do know better. <laughs> so I wanted that second case. Uh, and then I, what made the show work, I think, is that I went and interviewed Rick Barry, who was one of the few basketball players to ever consistently use the underheaded free throw. And uh, even he would do it, you know, even though he was, he was almost, I mean, he was sort of not reviled, but made fun of for using this kind of awkward shot. And he turns out to be this incredibly compelling character. Um, and so that uh, the episode is just all about Will Chamberlain and Rick Barry and then trying to make sense of why is it that some people can do some kind of, be the first, be one of the few to be willing to try some new idea and the rest of us are hostile. Right. And you talk about, you get into that whole idea in sociology of thresholds where yes, some of us need that, a lot of people to be doing something before we're like, yeah, I'll do that too. Yeah. If you think about it as a kind of peer pressure model that um, some people, all of us will do even the most ridiculous thing if enough people are also doing the ridiculous thing. Right. I mean, so there's, but some people don't require a lot to go first before they act. And that difference in how many people 
how many of your peers need to be doing something before you'll join in is called your threshold. And the low threshold people don't need a lot of others to go first. And high threshold people need the world to go first before they'll join in. Um, and uh, Wilt Chamberlain was a high threshold person. He was not going to continue shooting the underhanded free throw um, if he was going to be the only one or one of the only people. He didn't want to be, didn't want to stand out in that way. Um, whereas Rick Barry is someone who is quite happy being the only person in the NBA to shoot that way. It doesn't bother him that he's that kind of, fact, his whole career, he persisted in doing things that sort of set him apart from from others. And uh, that's a kind of, that way of understanding our behavior is really interesting because it frames our choices in social terms. It says, the reason you do certain things may have nothing to do with the quality of the idea or your own personal preferences. It just has to do with the social context. You know, that your 12-year-old, your 18-year-old son will drive 100 miles an hour while drunk, even though he knows that is a terrible idea, if he's in a car full of his friends who are all drunk and urging him to drive 100 miles an hour, right? It's just social. He, he, he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't believe in that. He's a lot smarter than that. But in the moment, surrounded by his peers egging him on, he's capable of doing something very stupid. That is a profoundly human reaction. Texas Pete is the sauce that allows you to sauce like you mean it. Each Texas Pete sauce is packed with a bold, balanced flavor. The signature tanginess is what makes it a legendary hot sauce that can be used on just about anything. You're definitely going to want to try every flavor. The original hot sauce has a famous secret blend of fermented peppers. Their hotter hot sauce is three times hotter than the original, and it's not for the faint of heart. They also got a flavor called Sabor by Texas Pete, adds authentic Mexican flavor, and they also have a dust-dry seasoning that matches the flavor of the original hot sauce in a flavorful dry rub. But... The flavor that I've been enjoying lately is the chopped sriracha sauce. It's got chili, garlic, and some tropical tangy notes. It's really good. I love putting on my eggs. Texas Pete sauce like you mean it. Visit texaspeat.com and use the store locator to find Texas Pete products as well as purchase sauces and get recipe inspiration. And you can use promo code podcast24 for 20% off at texaspeat.com. That's podcast24 for 20% off at texaspeat.com. Check out the Sriracha Cha Sauce. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. 
If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor Meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Well, I'm curious, in, in your research, have you found anything where you can sort of inculcate, you know, sort of an antidote to that where you can actually height, you know, raise your threshold to where you'll just do something even if other people are saying, don't do that or do this? Well, there's a great example of this in um, uh, binge drinking on campus that what people, uh, this is one of the single most effective interventions against drinking on campus. Um, they ask students whether they, what percentage of students they thought engaged in binge drinking. And most students said they thought it was something like 60% or 70% of, of a lot of students. So they thought that binge drinking was something the majority did. And so that's why they did it. They felt they were to not binge drink would be to stand out. And then they inform them that the real number is actually something like 20%. It's a minority. And just telling students that something they thought was um, something everyone did uh, was actually something that very few people did dramatically reduced the incidence of binge drinking. So there what you're doing is you're playing with thresholds. You're saying that a uh, a behavior that uh, people thought was um, commonplace was actually rare. And the minute you say that a behavior is rare, the social context in which that behavior occurs changes dramatically. I think I've heard a similar study with that with hookup culture, where 
you know, they'll tell, ask students, like, how many do you, how many people, how many of your peers do you think are engaging in, you know, uh, sexual relationships, like on the first date? And everyone thought everyone was doing it, but then they informed them, no, it's actually a small percentage. And then that reduced the amount. Yeah, it's the same. It's a remarkably effective way of, um, same thing happened. You know, if you think about something simple, like, uh, wearing your seatbelt, Americans were resistant for years to wearing their seatbelts. Um, but now it's second nature. You now you're if you don't wear your seatbelt, you stand out so much that it's almost impossible not to buckle up. And can you imagine? I can't remember being in a car where someone wasn't wearing a seatbelt. I mean, it would be everyone would remark on it. They would think you were weird and strange. I mean, the kind of social pressure now around wearing your seatbelt is overwhelming. That was not true in 1980. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think and you explore this idea of like people knowing uh, what they should do. There's a better way to do something, but they don't do it. You also hit on this a bit in David and Goliath, where you talk about, again, basketball, but this team of 12-year-old girls who were utilizing the full court press all the time to win basketball games. Um, that seemed to be that seems to be related to that, because like no one else does it, but this one team decided that this is what they're going to do. Yeah. Well, you don't. Basketball teams, particularly youth girls basketball teams, don't play that way because it's obnoxious. <laughs> if you press against a group of 12-year-old girls, they won't be able to get the ball off the court. I mean, and so that you can't actually play basketball if you press 100% of the time against, uh, you know, relatively, you know, uh, non-elite uh, even boys basketball at that age, you know, the game becomes impossible to play. So you have to be willing to disrupt, uh, the game in a really profound way to play that way. Right. You have to be pretty bold and, um, thick skinned because the other team, the other parents particularly, are going to get really angry because no one's, no one's, no one's shooting. It's just all turnovers. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, and so that was a sort of funny thing. It was that the only, this, this is not a strategy that, um, it's a strategy that requires, at least in the beginning, um, some pretty thick skinned, um, obnoxious people to pull off. Right. And, and you talk about Rick Barry was sort, was sort of like, he was sort of thick skinned and obnoxious. He didn't have a really good reputation. Uh, even though you talk about it yeah. in his biography, like he, he had these quotes from his parents who just like kind of, you know, eviscerated him a little bit and that he was yeah, okay he with that. Yeah. He's not, he didn't care what people think about him. Um, I don't actually think, I think he's a very pleasant, I actually think he thought he was a nice, good person, but he just doesn't, you know, the rest of us spend a lot of time doing things and saying things that we think will win the approval of, those around us, he does not. It's not even on the table. He does what he thinks is, thinks is right, um, and that is a really that's a sure way to make enemies. You know, he he went on and on about how and he's absolutely right. He does not understand why uh, in the NBA, when someone misses a free throw, all the members of his team congratulate him. They, you know, they he's like, why are you congratulate? The guy just blew it. He just. He just botched an incredibly important and straightforward basketball play, and you're reinforcing his mistake by by clapping him on the back and high fiving him and 
doing whatever you do. He's like, that's crazy. You should be doing the opposite. You should be shaming this guy for missing the free throw. He's right. I mean, why are you congratulating someone for for screwing up? Um, you're creating a social context in which people don't feel they have to be great free throw shooters, right? Right. Um, and uh, but you can see why someone who feels that way would be ostracized on a basketball team. Yeah, that would very would be the guy glaring at. Yeah, you know, it's, it's all social. At uh, yeah, at at, at uh, Dwight Howard for for missing a free throw right. in the final minute of the game. Right. And um, that's not going to endear you to Dwight Howard. <laughs> well, um, Malcolm, one something you I've noticed you're very passionate about education, um, particularly mm-hmm. education philanthropy. Because uh, I, I saw the tweet storm that you did a while back ago. Um, and I have two questions related to education because I think they're connected in a way. Um, in David and Goliath, you talk about how the way many college students go about deciding which college to attend actually can stunt their academic growth. Uh, can mm-hmm. you flesh that idea out a bit? Yeah, that's called uh, big fish little pond theory. And it says that um, it just is a, a psychological observation that it's really hard to be in the bottom half of any classroom. Um, it really uh, makes it difficult for you to remain confident, to learn what you need to learn, to persevere. Um, and there's all kinds of evidence for this. And so putting a student in a situation where he or she is in the bottom half is perilous. It's not always bad. It just increases the chances that particularly if you're engaged in something that's very difficult, that you're going to drop out. Um, so I'd use the example of, of science and math classes. It's really hard to be in the bottom half of a difficult math class. You, And when we look at why dropout rates are so high in science and math education, and they are extremely high, that's what's happening, is that if you're taking calculus and uh, you're the worst person, you're the worst student in the class, it, you, chances of you finishing the year in that class are just minimal. Um, and so what that says is that the best place, the best environment to be when you're looking for a college is not the most elite college you can get into, but the college that where your chances of being in the top half are greatest. Um, so the best college for you is not the best college you can get into. Right. right. So if there's a choice that, between an if, Ivy League school and a state school, go with the state school. Sometimes right. many people will be better off in the state school because you'll be in a situation where you feel much more confident. And so your chances of getting a science degree or a law degree or a medical degree or what have you may be much greater in a non-elite place than an elite place. Um, and, you know, I that consideration, that simple rule, I think, is very often ignored. And students are so obsessed with the kind of getting into the most prestigious school they can that they forget that the most prestigious school may not be the best school for you. Right. And haven't they done studies where they found that, you know, looking at long-term trends, I, th- I know they've done this with law school, at least, that, uh, you know, which school you attended overall doesn't affect how well you do as a lawyer, Later on, you could go to a you know a state yeah, school and you, you've done just as well financially as if a, as a kid who went to Harvard. Yeah, that 
it's not it, generally speaking when people do economists do very careful um, studies of the usefulness of an elite education what they discover is it's not as useful as you think so that it's really people from Harvard do well because the kind of person who goes to Harvard does well in the world they would do just as well if they didn't it's not Harvard in other words it's making them succeed in life it's the fact that they're a very very smart talented person and so um it's their personal characteristics, not the characteristics of their school that are predicted of their success. So once you account for that, you realize the additional advantage that accrues from um, the reputation of your undergraduate school is small. It's just, we, we exaggerate it. It's just not the case that it makes a huge amount of difference right. where you go. It just makes you feel good in the moment saying that I got accepted to Brown. And that's where I'm going to go. Yeah. Uh, so I think this idea is connected to a recent podcast episode you did on revisionist history. Um, this idea that going with the most prestigious school can backfire on a person individually. It also seems uh, it's connected to your idea of how education philanthropy is done. Um, so in the past 20 years, there's been a boom in donations to American universities, big donations. Uh, but you argue that the way it's done is actually not all that productive. Uh, why is that? Well, there's been there has been this dramatic uptick in large gifts, so hundred million dollar plus gifts to American institutions, college institutions. They have all overwhelmingly gone to schools that are already rich. So, you know, the last heart you know, the last four hundred million dollar last two four hundred million dollar donations in uh in um the world of, of higher ed, uh Phil Knight's gift to Stanford and John Paulson's gift to Harvard went to schools with uh, an endowment of 22 billion and 36 billion, respectively. People are giving lots of money to schools that already have lots of money. And that episode of Revisionist History said, first of all, why? That's kind of crazy. Why would you? What sense does it? does it make to give money to people who are already rich, to institutions that are already rich? It would be like me writing a check to Bill Gates. Why would I, why would I do that? <laughs> you know? Um, and the second point, sort of the broader point is that when we give money away, we usually do a kind of return on, on our investment calculation, right? We say, how much good can be purchased with my money? And my argument is that if you give $400 million to a school that already has $36 billion, there's not much more they can do with that money. You know, they're, they've already, presumably, if you have that much money in the bank, they're already doing the kinds of things that money can buy. You know, they're, they've already set up the lab. They've already funded the research. They've already supported the student in financial aid. You know, whereas if you give that $400 million to a school that has $100 million in the bank, there's an amazing amount they can do with that money. They can, so it's, you know, when you, your return on your investment when you give money to a needy school is just vastly greater than if you give money to a wealthy school, just as it would be in real life if you're giving money away. The person living at the poverty line can do an extraordinary amount with a thousand dollars. A thousand dollars given to a 
billionaire is meaningless. Um, and I, my puzzle that I try and solve in that episode is why on earth does this very common sense principle, which is really clear when it comes to giving to people, why on earth is that ignored when it comes to giving to institutions? And I guess there, it seems like there's a little bit of that Matthew effect going on, right? Like success. We just want to, yeah. we want to go with the winner. So we give them more. Yeah. Which makes no sense. I think what I actually said in an interview recently that I thought that, uh, it was, if you give anyone who gives money to Princeton, which is on a per capita basis, the wealthiest educational institution in the history of mankind, anyone who gives money to Princeton is committing a, I think that's a moral obscenity. That's, it's wrong. There's no other way around it. I mean, you know, you might as well just burn your money, you know, if you're going to... It's just a school is a tiny school with... I don't remember how much money they have in the bank. But on a per capita basis, they are, you know, they're, they're basically... They're like one of those little islands in the South Pacific where everyone's a millionaire. Right. You know? as, <laughs> as you were describing that, it made me think of, like, stocks, Right. And stocks, like the idea is, do you want to, like, one of the things you do is you find the stocks that are undervalued and you invest in that. And, like, people, that makes sense to people. I think, like, the schools that are poor or don't have that much money are, like, sort of the undervalued stocks. There's a lot of opportunity for growth. Um, And in an investing world, like, you don't want to invest in the company that's overpriced or has already reached its peak price. That's what seems people people do with philanthropy. Yes. That's exactly right. That, that kind of, it's funny, you know, and, so this is another area where in certain realms, I think we think rationally, or at least we tend to think rationally, but then in other areas we don't. So we think rationally about stocks, usually, <laughs> but, but when it comes to educational philanthropy, we're completely unwilling to kind of, or not always, but many people, many, many wealthy people who are normally um, very thoughtful and intelligent. Um, are unwilling to um, to uh, use those use their same think as rationally when it comes to their um, their educational giving. It's interesting. Well, Malcolm, one thing um, I'd like to talk to shifting gears here a bit. I think one thing a lot of people don't know about you is that you're an avid runner. Uh, in fact, I just learned this. I am, yes. uh, two years ago, you were 50 years old. You ran a four minute, 54 second mile, which blows my mind because I'm this, it takes me like 13 minutes to run a mile. <laughs> I, I'm, when did you start running? And I'm curious, is there's anything you've learned from running, running that you applied to your work as a writer? So I was, uh, well, I was a, I ran a lot in, um, high school. And then, uh, very successfully, and then I stopped and really didn't race again for 30 years. Um, although I ran a little bit, but I was standard, started to run seriously again in my, in my fifties. Um, uh, what, what is, I mean, running is about, um, I don't know that there's a direct overlap with, with writing, except that it gives you, it's a period of time, extended period of time for reflection. And I just think, right, if you're going to be a successful writer, you need to have extended periods of reflection. And so you go for a 10-mile run. That's a good, you know, hour and change where that you have with your, that you're alone with your thoughts. And so that can be a, there's a nice overlap between the 
um, the opportunity given by a long run and the requirements of writing. Well, Malcolm, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your work in your new podcast, Revisionist History? Well, we have a website, revisionisthistory.com, where um, all the episodes are available for download. And and I have a website, gladwell.com, where a lot of my writing is archived. And so I think between the two of those websites, uh, you can pretty much get the full story. Fantastic. Well, Malcolm Gladwell, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Great. Yeah, it's been really fun. Thank you. My guest today was Malcolm Gladwell. He's the author of several books that you can find on Amazon.com. Uh, but be sure to share out his new podcast, Revisionist History. You can go to revisionisthistory.com to download episodes there or search for it on iTunes. It's a really great show. Also, check out the show notes for this podcast at aom.is slash gladwell. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show, have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes. It helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for continuing to support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.